0: Welcome back everyone to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is an evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here in the United States. I'm your host Michelle and even though I'm a skeptic by nature I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and I'm really open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So, join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I'll present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So, join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode is especially exciting to me because it happens in my home state of North Carolina. I'm actually going to be covering two separate stories here in this Haunted Carolina episode. And the first one is that of the Devil's Tramping Ground in Bear Creek, North Carolina. Now, I've actually heard about this place for years, and it's not actually that physically far from me. So I'm definitely going to get out there one of these days. And when I do, I will, of course, update you all on what I found. But let's get into the tramping ground itself. The origins of it date all the way back to the 1700s when Chatham County, North Carolina was established. The oral history of the grounds date all the way back before the Revolutionary War and written records begin about the late 1800s. Now the tramping grounds are currently on private property, though from all of my research it seems as if the owners of the property don't really mind people camping out. The Dowd family is the current owner, and they have owned the property for over a hundred years and really just ask that you be respectful with your trash and noise level as you should be at any campground. Now the Devil's Tramping Grounds are located in a very fitting location right off of Devil's Tramping Ground Road. There is a sign directing you to the tramping grounds, but it has a really high tendency to get stolen, so don't depend on looking for the sign. How to get there is after you have traveled about a mile and a half down the road on Devil's Tramping Ground Road, you'll see a red gate with gravel in front of it. And this is actually where you can park in the gravel area and then you walk around the gate. Um, Don't worry, there's plenty of room at the gate to walk around it with all your camping supplies. It isn't really even much of a hike too, so it's pretty easy if you're packing a little bit in You only have to walk about 150 feet down a pretty well-worn path and you'll get to a spot where a clearing is. And this clearing is actually what is known as the Devil's Tramping Ground. The road isn't really heavily trafficked, so it makes for quite a quiet experience while camping, Though it does depend on your fellow campers, as it has apparently become a popular spot for teens, ghost hunters, and all that. So it can get a little bit rowdy sometimes. And this has actually led the property to being vandalized. So the owner actually had to put up a private property sign. Though again, people are supposedly allowed as long as they are respectful. So let's get into what the Devil's Tramping Ground actually is before you try to visit it. It's basically a barren circle that spans about 40 feet in diameter and oddly enough is actually nearly a perfect circle, which is pretty rare to happen in nature. And it has been barren for as long as history is documented, which is hundreds of years. Remember, the 1800s is when documentation first began. And over these hundreds of years, many people have tried to plant vegetation here, but it never establishes, and it always wilts and dies. And you might wonder why this is happening. Well, the circle is surrounded by woods, plenty of lush vegetation, just not the circle. One legend of it states that this area was inhabited by indigenous tribes who wore the circle into the earth with ceremonial dancing. There was also a great battle, and many of these indigenous people were killed. And one of those people killed was actually the chief from the tribe who died and was buried here on the grounds. And what this tribe's people say is the gods have kept the circle barren as a memorial to this fallen chief. Though, some legends also state that the blood soaked into the ground and made it barren. In a 1905 article in the Carolinian newspaper written by a man named G.W. Pascal, he stated that when he dug into the soil of the circle, the soil looked very different in the circle as opposed to the soil around the circle. He said it was a bluish clay-looking soil that appeared to have been brought to the area. And this could lend to the theory of the chief who died being buried here, as legend stated that the tribe actually brought in soil to the area with blankets to bury the chief. The author in this article further claimed that treasure hunters came to the area and may have buried their treasure here. And this also keeps things from growing. So two very different stories to kind of explain the same thing. In the 1930s, there began to be reports of a large black animal, and it was said to chase both hunters and dogs away who came to the area. And the beast apparently resembled a black bear, but those who were chased said it wasn't a bear. Nobody could really describe what exactly it was. But those reports don't any longer commonly go with the legend of the tramping grounds. They were kind of just in the decade of the 30s. Another theory of why nothing can grow here is a theory that the ground was worn into this circle from a molasses mill. And in this theory, the horses walk in a circle repeatedly over and over again to power the mill, leading to, of course, this giant barren circle. Though this has been decades and decades and centuries, why would this circle still be there? more recent reports actually attribute the barren patch to aliens. And this started as people found the perfect circle to be similar to kind of the crop circles you see in wheat fields and things like that. So it was believed that a UFO actually landed here at the devil's tramping ground, causing the land to become irradiated, which prevents anything from growing here. But of course, all of these are theories and legends, but let's get to the most popular legend of why this barren circle is here, and that is what gives it its name of the devil's tramping ground. And what it is said is the devil himself paces around this circle over and over again, scheming different ways to bring his reign of evil down upon humanity. His pacing is and the heat from his feet is what is said to kill and prevent vegetation from growing here. It is even said that no wildlife is ever spotted in this barren circle, including deer, squirrels, birds, any of that. And even creepier is the area is actually silent and devoid of any animal sounds. I mean, the only thing you will hear is bugs in the very distance and sometimes a passing car from the nearby road. And dogs, they're said to avoid this circle entirely. When they approach it, they will tuck their tails, they'll whine, yip, howl, and really just try to back away and get away any way they can. And people who are camping here will say they see shadowy figures, they'll see glowing red eyes during the night. And even if you don't see these things, many campers report hearing footsteps around their tent and the circle, which could be the devil pacing. It is said that at the devil's tramping ground that no camper can spend a full night here and remain sane. This leaves people to speculate that the campers see something that drives them to complete insanity. Popular theories state that the people see the true face of the devil and it is so horrible that they were never the same which for any of you who have watched or read Bird Box, it's kind of what it reminded me of when I read that. Now, we know why it's called the Devil's Tramping Ground due to this most popular legend. But not only will nothing grow here, but anything left in the circle will be removed. So if you place something in this barren circle, it will be thrown out from the circle purportedly by the devil himself. And it doesn't matter the size or the weight of the object either. I mean, he can throw a huge massive log out, anything. But apparently he's okay with the fire pit in the middle of the circle, which if you look at the pictures I'll post on social media, you can see there's a giant fire pit in the middle of this barren circle. And why this is here is of course people camp here at night. They want to have their campfire, their s'mores, all of that. And I guess since it doesn't interfere with his circular path, the devil chooses to allow it. People have tried to anchor sticks into the ground, they've brought other items in, but in the morning again, they're all removed from the circle. And this is said to happen as the devil is annoyed that things are in his way and his superhuman strength allows him to just kick them out of the way or whatever he wants to do with them. So If you do camp here, you might want to set tent up outside of the circle, or you might wake up not how you imagined. For example, there was a troop of Boy Scouts who set up their tents in the circle, and when they woke up in the morning, their tents were miles away from the tramping grounds. Miles. And In another instance, a few men went out to investigate this and set up their tents in the circle. They were going to actually stay up all night to see what happens. They wanted to see if the devil was actually kind of pacing around. Though, in the middle of the night, they began to hear a soft, melodic voice singing to them, and they couldn't stay awake while hearing the siren's song. And when they awoke in the morning, just like the Boy Scouts, they were miles and miles away. So lots of reports of what is going on at the tramping ground, lots of legends, supposedly why the tramping grounds are barren and what's causing it. But let's get into a little bit of the facts because of course this is paranormal exposed. We're going to see what lines up. So let's see if we can figure out what's going on with the paranormal occurrence that's happening here at the Devil's Tramping Grounds. Now, As far as reports of indigenous tribes using this area for spiritual reasons, it could definitely be possible. I mean, there were tribes in the area, though there are no reports of a large battle taking place here. It could have been a small skirmish between various tribes or even white men who came into the area, and there was a little bit of a skirmish. Also, there was an old molasses mill nearby, so it could have been a spot where the animals made the barren spot with their consistent walking in a circle. Though when experts have actually compared this site with similar mills, there's no comparison. In all of the other mill sites, vegetation has fully come back, but not here at the devil's tramping ground. And why is that? So maybe it's not the mill, maybe the UFO theory holds up. But soil tests haven't turned up any signs of radiation that would attribute to the UFO landing here. Though, maybe they weren't testing for radiation. We don't know. And speaking of tests, many people have wondered why vegetation won't grow here. And many over the years have researched it and taken various soil samples. The first research was in 1946 by the W.A. Bridges Lab in Wilson, And Wilson is maybe about two hours from the Devil's Tramping Ground. And what they did is they ran soil tests and also sent samples to the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. The tests show that the soil is actually completely sterile, but that didn't solve the mystery. I mean, why is the soil sterile and has been for hundreds of years? So in the early 2000s, a North Carolinian soil scientist named Richard Hayes began testing the soil again with more modern techniques so we could get a little bit more information. His results didn't show any higher elevations of copper or salt concentrations, which were his two theories of what could be inhibiting the growth of any vegetation. He did state that there were higher concentrations of salt, copper, zinc, and pH inside of the circle versus the surrounding area, but nothing that should prevent plants from actually growing here. He also stated in his research that in the circle his compass skewed five degrees, and this can be common if soil is high in iron, but this soil is not high in iron. Hayes did state that the consistent fires and the ash pile in the middle of the circle may be affecting the ability of vegetation to grow here and could also be why the pH of the soil is higher. He also attributed the lack of plant life to the consistent foot traffic and heat from the frequent fires, though this doesn't account for the hundreds of years that the spot has been barren. I mean, only recently has it become a really kind of more high-traffic spot for people who are really interested in the paranormal. At the end of his investigation, Hayes stated that he could not scientifically explain what was the cause of the lack of growth. There has been a newest study completed at the site which presents us with the most noteworthy explanation for the barren spot. The North Carolina Department of Agriculture conducted an independent study of the soil and found the same results as the study done in 1946, that the soil is sterile, which they stated was due to a high salt content. This theory was bolstered by the discovery of the remains of a natural salt lick in the area. Though it's a little strange because the last sightings and soil samples stated that it wasn't a higher concentration of salt just as opposed to the, you know, area around the barren circle. Also, while it is claimed that no vegetation grows in the circle, there is actually some plant life that does grow here. The only vegetation that survives here is a very wiry grass And locals have actually tried to transplant this wiry grass to other soils, but it doesn't survive. Now, while we say this barren circle is 40 feet in diameter, nothing grows here and all that, now we know a wiry grass grows here. And also, while the site was 40 feet in diameter, it has actually gotten much, much smaller in the 21st century. And it's actually only about 20 feet in diameter now, much, much smaller and it is said that this is due to the salt lakes dissipating and the salt content naturally leaching out of the soil, which is why the wiry grass is now taking over. This could also be because the ash from the burned wood is naturally fertilizing the soil, which is actually bolstered by a new study that was conducted in September of 2015. The soil inside the circle is now shown to be more fertile than the surrounding area, but the problem is the pH is 5, which is very acidic and lower than the optimum range of 5.6 to 6.5. As time has gone on, the site is now being said to have a positive energy versus, you know, the devil's tramping ground. In addition to be called The devil's tramping ground, it's also known now as the Chatham County vortex. It's known as an energy vortex where the high vibrating energy balances energy, strengthens harmony, and expands human consciousness. So, what are the reports of items and people being physically removed from the area in the morning? Well, the story of the Boy Scouts and the campers finding themselves miles away from the site when they woke up are retold over and over and over again. But there's never a year or names of these people, and it sounds like it's just basically legends. It's been a spot for people to explore and see haunted reports for about a hundred years now, and I couldn't find any record of the Boy Scout stories or anything like that, so it's likely just kind of an urban legend. Now, whether it's aliens, the devil, ancient indigenous people, you know, a calming energy vortex, it doesn't seem that it mines items in the circle anymore. So now if an object is left in the circle, it's still there in the morning. And remember I stated it's now a local teenage hangout spot? Well, this has resulted in a ton of trash and beer cans left in the circle an arrested refrigerator has actually sat in the circle for years before the Douds finally hauled it away. So maybe the devil has had enough of the partying and teens and the litter and has found maybe a new spot to tramp around. I've read about and seen videos of people bringing their dogs to the site and you see dogs just kind of happily running about and whatever you hear the sounds of birds and all that in the videos. So I'm not sure if any of what is said is kind of holding up as for that. And what do the Dowd family say about the Devil's Tramping Grounds? Well, they say it's an absolute nightmare. Though, not why you might think. What they state is that there are issues with graffiti on the trees and the road, people leaving their trash everywhere, being pretty rowdy. I mean, the Dowds live on property but the Dauds are curious about the mystery of the barren spot and are okay with the unknown, so they're not really actively seeking an answer to why it's barren. The family does want to keep the history going and pass it on to future generations as they believe the legends and folklore are important. So what they do is they try to keep it clean and they do share this land with visitors. All they ask for is that you take care of the land Like any camping or hiking experience, make sure you pack in and pack out. The Dowds do hope one day to have tours of the property and have the ability for people to rent the campsites. But at this time, it's just kind of a walk-in and be courteous of your neighbor campers. So that's going to end the Devil's Tramping Ground. Um, You can kind of think what you want. Maybe you've had an experience that you'd like to share but I really couldn't find any proof or anything like that other than legends that have kind of been debunked in the last decade or two. Now, before I get into our second story, I wanted to give you guys all a podcast recommendation. And the podcast I'm going to recommend is part of what is known as the BooPod Network, which is really a network of amazing podcasts, including this one, of course that, what we do is we help promote each other so that we can bring other great podcasts to listener ears. And today I'd like to recommend the podcast called Haunted or Hoax. This podcast is hosted by Jennifer and Kristen, who are pretty good friends. One of them is a skeptic and one of them is a believer. They both delve into paranormal stories to let you know if it's haunted or is it a hoax? Here is their trailer, so make sure you check them out. Hi, I'm Kristen. And I'm Jennifer. And we're the hosts of Haunted or Hoax, a paranormal investigation podcast where we investigate the legends and history, not just the ghosts. Our locations range from houses down in Savannah, Georgia, murder houses in the Midwest, to hotels in West Virginia. Additionally, we get together and go on ghost tours and bring the legends and history to you. Join us every Tuesday as we discuss the legends, history, and experiences from haunted locations. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: All right. Now we've covered the Devil's Tramping Ground, and it's time to get into the second story of this episode. And this is the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, North Carolina. Spoiler alert, I have been to this location three times. The first time, I did not know about the resident ghosts. And the second time, and third time, I did. So I'll share a little bit more as I get into it. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about Asheville, North Carolina, it is located at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains in the southwest corner of the state of North Carolina. And since it is located at the base of the mountains, you have amazing sweeping views of the peak. You're close to the Blue Ridge Parkway. It's just a gorgeous area. And this story starts with a man named Edwin Wiley Grove. And what he did is he commissioned his son-in-law, Fred Seely to design and build the Grove Park Inn. The Grove Park Inn was completed in a record time for that period for such a massive place. It was completed three days shy of just one year. And this is again impressive as this is a massive hotel and it was built with only the use of mules, wagons, rope, 400 laborers, and 20 stonemasons. And how they got it done so quickly is the workers had to work six days a week in 10-hour shifts and had to haul stones weighing as much as 10,000 pounds. And you may wonder why people would work under these conditions for a year and this sounds horrible. They were actually though given very high wages to ensure they would be dedicated and stay on the project. And to speed the process up even further and ensure they would be at the site is workers were made to sleep in circus tents on the job site even on their days off. So pretty grueling working conditions but the pay must have been pretty good to keep them there for almost a year. Now the hotel opened on July 12th of 1913 and it was originally comprised of 156 guest rooms, a dining room, a massive lobby with two enormous fireplaces on either side. And the fireplaces are huge. They can hold 12 foot long logs. They're fashioned out of stone and absolutely gorgeous. They're still there on either side of the hotel today In the summer months, only one of the fireplaces is lit, but in the winter, you can enjoy both with plenty of seating around. Now, these fireplaces are gas now, not logs, and while you do see the original log holders, they do not use them anymore. They just kind of have them off to the side. And the chimneys for the fireplaces actually have two separate purposes. One of them is, of course, to vent the smoke from the fire, and the second, actually to house the elevators. They're really actually hard to see, the little door, and there is actually an elevator attendant to take you up to whatever floor you might want for each of the two elevators. They're pretty cool. You can actually go inside them. You can see some stained glass in there. It's just kind of a cool experience. So even if you want to do the stairs, you should definitely do the elevators at least once. Now, Sealy designed the building to be fireproof. And how he did this is he designed the roof with three foot thick cement. And he also used steel rods, asphalt, and red clay tile. The hotel is absolutely beautiful. It's made out of granite rock that is said to be five feet thick and was sourced from the local area. You can actually still see the original hotel, the granite rock. You can stay in the original rooms. It's beautiful. And when the inn was built, it was marketed as a retreat to just kind of get away from the hustle and bustle of the city and also to recover from any illnesses with fresh mountain air. As remember, this is a time when TB was prevalent, other respiratory conditions, and many doctor recommendations were just go to the mountains, breathe fresh air, eat well, rest, and you'll be fine. Though the Grove Park Inn was definitely, definitely geared towards a retreat as they really enforced the quiet getaway by various means. They prohibited alcohol on the grounds at all. Guests were discouraged from bringing any small children. And during evening hours after 10 o'clock, guests were not allowed to speak above a whisper and even run the water in their room. They weren't even allowed to flush the toilet. And how the staff made sure this happened is they would turn the water off to the guest rooms at night. Now during the day, Celie wanted the inn to really offer a homey vibe, but also the conveniences and entertainment that people would want. I mean, this is a nice hotel. So he did this by adding some good entertainment options to the hotel, including a 40-foot indoor swimming pool with a shower room, There was a bowling alley, a billiards room, a golf course, and the Great Hall, where a movie screen would be put up to host movie screenings. There was also singers, lecturers, and musicians who would perform most evenings at the inn. Seely designed and took over management of the hotel when it opened, though he continually attempted to purchase it from his father-in-law, Grove, though every time Grove declined. He did, though, allow Seeley to lease the inn, which Seeley managed until 1927. That is when Grove died, and Seeley lost a bid to own the hotel. So the hotel was actually left to Grove's wife and his two children, as Seeley was actually married to Grove's daughter. But it didn't really help him much, and management ended up changing hands. In addition to entertaining guests, The hotel actually served various purposes during World War II. The inn became a place where diplomats of the Axis powers were held kind of as prisoners. And the Axis powers at that time were Germany, Italy, and Japan. Although it's not actually stated which of the Axis power diplomats stayed here and where they were held. And it didn't actually sound like a bad place to be. They were able to stay at this beautiful upscale hotel, and they were also able to take supervised trips into Asheville to purchase supplies, food, things like that. So not really my idea of so-called imprisonment. For a time, the Army and Navy used the inn as a redistribution station. And what this means is the military men who were injured, they were able to come here and recover till they could be reassigned somewhere else. And it was also a respite between various assignments for the military. During the war, the Filipino president, Manuel Quezon, actually stayed at the inn with his family and staff, and they used the presidential cottage, which is still on site, as their government headquarters. The presidential cottage was also where presidents such as Eisenhower stayed, though is actually now able to be booked by families, and I've never been inside it, but the outside of it looks pretty cool, and it's built with the same granite stone that is on the outside of the entire Grove Park Inn. It is also said that the inn was to be used as a retreat for the United States Supreme Court members if there was actually ever a nuclear attack remember, this was Cold War era, things like that. People were worried about nuclear attacks. How we know this is because of an edition of the Wall Street Journal, which covered that. Now, from 1955 to 2012, the inn was owned and managed by the Salmons Enterprises. And upon acquiring the hotel, Salmons began immediately investing in the hotel to restore and renovate it and he wanted to return this aging hotel to being a world-class resort. So over the decades, he expanded the hotel with additional wings, restored the main inn, they constructed a sports center, and added the world-famous spa at the inn. But they did also want to maintain the heritage of the inn, so they duplicated the granite walls, the woodwork, and the furnishings throughout the inn. On April 3rd of 1973, the Grove Park Inn was actually added to the Registry of Historic Places and is a member of the Historic Hotels of America and part of the Natural Trust for Historic Preservation, so the hotel's not going anywhere. For a short period of time from 2012 to 2013, KSL Resorts bought the hotel. Until 2013, Omni Hotels purchased it and it became the Omni Grove Park Inn, which they actually remain the owners to this day. Now, the hotel has grown quite a bit. Remember, it started with 156 rooms, but today it is 513 guest rooms, and these are contained in five different sections. These sections are joined end-to-end along the mountain ridge, and it boasts 140 acres with gorgeous views of the mountains. And all of this is actually only a mile and a half from the city center of Asheville, where there's tons of shopping, walking, little restaurants, and all sorts of cool things. Also, there are 40 meeting rooms throughout the facility, various restaurants. There's two ballrooms, which are popular as wedding venues. There's tons of shopping in the hotel and both an indoor and outdoor swimming pool. And speaking of the outdoors, there are nine tennis courts, a full-service sports and fitness center, and an 18-hole golf course. And mentioning the spa again, it's the most famous amenity at the Omni Grove Park Inn, as it is a 43,000-square-foot subterranean spa and is ranked number five in the world by Travel and Leisure magazine. It's actually so prestigious and popular that you can only book spa services if you are a guest at the hotel, and you better reserve well in advance. Lastly, the Grove Park Inn is a AAA four-diamond hotel and has been since 2001, so it's known for great food, luxury, and so forth. Now enough about how amazingly beautiful the Grove Park Inn, blah, blah, blah. Let's get into the hauntings. This hotel is over a 100 years old and surprisingly there is actually only one reported ghost and she is known as the Pink Lady. Yes, no white lady, no black lady. She is the Pink Lady. This young woman known as the Pink Lady was enjoying her time at the Grove Park Inn and while she was there she was wearing a gorgeous pink ball gown. She was on the balcony in the palm tree court when she fell from the terrace. And sadly, she passed away from her injuries sustained through the fall. And the questions remain to this day. Who exactly is the pink lady and why was she at the hotel? Was she a guest? Was she someone attending an event? Was she a secret lover? Was it an accident, a murder, suicide? No matter what happened, who she was, many guests and staff had had experiences with the pink lady. And I'm going to give you the haunted reports of the Pink Lady, and then we're going to see if we can solve the mystery of who she was and what happened to her. The Pink Lady is definitely not a malevolent spirit at all. She is said to be caring and a bit of a little bit of a prankster. She's usually seen as a pink mist versus a full-on apparition, though sometimes she does appear as this apparition of a young woman in a pink ball gown. Though she doesn't really like to appear to adults, she prefers to appear to children. And some of the things she'll do is she'll turn the lights on and off in the room, she'll switch her air conditioner on and off, and she'll open and close doors. She also likes to rearrange items in the rooms throughout the hotel. And weirdly, she has a habit of tickling the feet of people while they are sleeping, which mm, don't do that to me. You'll get kicked in the face. So can you kick a ghost in the face? I don't No. Children do report having played games with a woman in a pink dress and she appears to children mostly while they're sick. She will sit with the sick child and speak softly to them, sing, stroke their hands in comfort, things like that. Now one pretty well-known account is there was a doctor who had been a guest at the inn and when he was checking out he left a note and he wanted to ask the staff to thank the lady in the pink ball gown as he stated his children told him how much fun they had playing with the pink lady. The managers of the hotel's nightclub stated he has seen the pink lady several times, and at 4 a.m. after a New Year's Eve party, two workers actually saw a woman in a pink gown rush by the office, though when they peeked around the corner to talk to her, she was gone. Room 545 is actually the most active place the pink lady appears and plays her pranks. And it's believed that's because the pink lady was staying in room 545 on the night of her death or that she was meeting her lover there. We don't know. Room 545 has a balcony and that is said where she fell from. But supposedly when she isn't hanging out in her room, she likes to wander the hotels and the grounds. It is said, the closer you are to this room, the higher chance you have to see her. Now, I will say that I did go up to the room area. I mean, you can't go in, obviously. I went to the Palm Core, hung out down there. I went to the fifth floor, walked all around, took tons of pictures, kind of tried to talk to Pink Lady. Now, of course, I don't have any special equipment, but I, unfortunately, did not feel anything or see anything. And that includes the cold spots that can be apparently felt throughout her room and around room 545. Some of the rooms nearby and halls nearby also get these cold spots that people associate with the pink lady. There was a contractor who was apparently working on the hotel, and he was working in room 545. And when he was leaving to head to the atrium, before he could exit the room, he felt a sudden tugging on his ear and cold chills all throughout his body. He said he felt like someone else was in the room with him, and it freaked him out so much that he ran out of the room and refused to enter that room ever again. In the 1950s, when major renovations were going on, one of the workers began having a strange feeling. When he got close to room 545, he suddenly began experiencing chills too, and it got so bad that he had to leave the floor entirely. And the further he got away from room 545, the better he felt. So it perturbed him so much that he actually sent other people to finish the job for him so he wouldn't have to go back to that room. Many people have reported other strange feelings kind of like that, but also of not being alone and being touched in the room. One couple who was staying in the room next to 545 Around midnight said they heard guests checking into room 545, and they made quite a bit of commotion making it hard for the couple to get back to sleep. Now, as the woman was trying to sleep, she felt her husband hold her hand, though all of a sudden she realized it couldn't be her husband as he was sleeping on the other side of the bed. And once she realized it, the sensation of holding her hand completely disappeared. Creepy. The next morning, she complained to the front desk about the noisy neighbors, but the staff told her no one checked into room 545. They then proceeded to tell her the tales of the pink lady and that she must have held the pink lady's hand that night without realizing it. Another story of a family who stayed in room 545 reported that they had put their two-year-old son down for a nap, and when they went to wake the boy up, they found he was already awake. And, when they talked to him, he asked them where the pink lady had gone. These are just a few of the tales that the people have had experience with the pink lady. I mean, staff, patrons, everybody talks about it. When I was coming down the elevator, one of the attendants in the elevator told me all about the experiences he had had. He showed me a few pictures. I would have asked for him to send them to me, but they didn't look very creepy to me. Just kind of weird flashes, things like that. But now that we know the haunted reports of the pink lady, let's delve into who she may be. Many believe that she wasn't a guest at the hotel, but latter that she was either a prostitute, a woman having an affair, or some have even said that she was a woman who had a mental disorder. It's been claimed that she was murdered by someone who pushed her over the balcony, Though some state she accidentally slipped. I mean, regardless, I mean, whether it was suicide, she slipped, she was pulled. Who knows? I mean, either way, she apparently died here and is haunting here. Regardless, there's even people who say she never existed at all. So common legend is that the Pink Lady died in the early 1920s. And some believe the Pink Lady is the spirit of Zelda Fitzgerald, the wife of the famous author F. Scott Fitzgerald. Now, F. Scott did stay in two rooms on the fourth floor of the hotel, but it doesn't make sense that Zelda would haunt here, as Zelda did not stay with F. Scott. They were actually in Asheville so that Zelda could receive treatments for some mental issues she was having. So she was at Asheville's Highland Hospital, which was a very expensive and prestigious asylum at the time. Zelda would visit F. Scott at the inn from time to time, but they weren't, like, happy visits. Staff reported that they would sit there and eat in absolute silence. He would then walk the grounds of the inn with Zelda before returning her to the asylum. And in 1948, Zelda actually tragically died in the fire at Highland Hospital. So again, Zelda never stayed in a room at the inn, let alone room 545. She also would have not had great memories of the hotel. I mean, her husband pretty much ignored her, was usually drunk. They didn't talk. Um, The only experience she really had of the hotel was eating there and walking the grounds. And also, she didn't go to lunch in a pink ball ground. She would just go in nice clothes. So it being her doesn't really make sense. Now, in 1996, the Omni Grove Park Inn put their investigation skills to the test. And they believe the Pink Lady is the spirit of Bruce Johnson's grandmother. Though, why would his grandmother haunt the Omni? She didn't stay here. She had no association really with the hotel. And why would she appear as a young woman in a ball gown? And also, his grandmother didn't die in this area. I'm not sure why this would make any sense. So after interviews, looking into public data, looking into newspaper records, no one has been able to determine who the pink lady is. And although there have been many reports of sightings of her, does she exist? There is no good photographic evidence. There is nothing to say she ever existed in any archives or anything like that. And really, in the last couple decades, the hotel is very excited to talk about the pink lady. There is an exhibit in the hotel showing what the pink lady might have been wearing and talking about her. You can take a guided audio tour for free of the facility, even if you don't stay here, which is actually pretty cool. You learn a lot. And, you, you know, they really tout it. Anybody you ask in the hotel, any staff is going to talk to you about the pink lady. So while I can't say without a doubt that she does not exist, I cannot say that she does. That would be for you to decide. So regardless, I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you think the Grove Park Inn is haunted or not, and if the Pink Lady exists. Also love to hear your thoughts on the tramping ground as well. In either case, at any place, if you have any proof or other facts you'd love to share, experiences, I would love to hear it. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday, wherever you tune in, and don't forget to leave a review and follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready. You can also follow the podcast social media for more information on each episode, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, Facebook, Paranormal Exposed, or you can always shoot an email to Paranormal Exposed Podcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.